Welcome back to another episode of Bopcast, where it is my job to interview outliers who are breaking the mold regardless of the status quo. And today on the show, I have Eric Cloward. Eric Cloward is a software engineer and most notably podcast host, the host of the Stoic Coffee Break. At this point, it has garnered over 3 million downloads and has become one of the most notable podcasts in the category of Stoicism. I got exposed to Stoicism a few years ago through Tim Ferriss and his podcast. Eric and I dived down that path exploring Stoicism. I would consider this an introduction to Stoicism. So if you have any idea of what Stoicism is and you haven't looked into it, I'm going to assume that everything you think about it is wrong. And I don't say that to try to say that you don't understand Stoicism. I say that because I believe, Eric and I believe, that it has been mismarketed. And due to that, things like his podcast have become uh, so impactful and powerful to really learn about what Stoicism truly is. So we dive into that, how it can change your life, how it changed my life as well. We also talk about um, controlling what you can you control in your life what can you not control and how does that affect the way you go about your life and finally we also have a great conversation about socialism that I did not expect to have and it really opened my mind to um, kind of like a whole new world of of understanding these different realities in these different countries that people live in that in America we really don't get to see so wide-ranging conversation today but extremely interesting and powerful with the great Eric Cloward, and ladies and gentlemen, as you know, our sponsor is SodaBeats.com. Please use the link in the show notes to try that out. All right, let's get to this episode with Eric Cloward. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Bopcast. Today on the podcast, I have my man Eric Cloward. Hope I said your last name right. Didn't confirm it with you beforehand, but uh, I try to be pretty good with these last names, man. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Um, I have I actually found Eric. This is actually the first episode where I've found somebody through the podcast, through a podcast, and then you know reached out um, to do an interview. So uh, really excited to dive into what you do, stoicism, um, you know your podcast as well, and kind of you know open up the conversation and see where we can. Take take it. But Eric, if you would, just so we can open the show up for folks, um, could you uh, just, you know, give them an introduction to yourself and, and kind of a little bit about who you are, and then we're kind of going to dive in and, and just let the conversation uh, do, do its thing. So my name is Eric Cloward. I'm the host of the Stoic Coffee Break podcast. Yeah, um, I started in what, I think it was 2018 was when I started that. And it was kind of a fluke. Yeah, I, I've been wanting to uh, create a podcast for a while. And had tried a bunch of different ideas and uh, was hypercritical about them. And so never ended up actually releasing anything. Um, and then for my New Year's resolution that year, I was like, okay, I got to I gotta put out a podcast. And I purchased uh, the Stoic Journal from Ryan Holiday, Daily Stoic, and had been writing in that and was just like, okay, this is something that I'm writing on every day. Maybe that's, maybe I could just do a podcast on that. So I started just recording it on my iPhone. And even though I'm a musician, I have all this equipment, had Logic Pro, have, you know, like $350 mic, all of these things, I found it exceptionally intimidating. And so what I did was just recorded it on my phone so that way I could actually just record it and push it out. And I recorded it on Anchor, did that for like the first, I don't know, 50, 60 episodes, maybe more, I can't remember, honestly said. Um, 
and even had it to where they had this thing where you could put music in the background. And so I would be talking over music and, and realized early on that that probably wasn't the best idea since a lot of people would be like, I can't hear it very well. Um, but mostly just recorded a whole bunch of them on my phone simply because I found the prospect of actually recording it, editing it, putting it out so uh, intimidating. And like I said, it, it sounds funny because I'd already made music. I'd done a bunch of other things. So the current theme song on there, for example, uh, was something I wrote and had that, you know, had that written years ago, but found that it was just, like I said, there was just like this, this insecurity, this, this need to have it so perfect that it was just, it just kept me from doing it. So I'm like, okay, just record it, put it out there. Um, and I started doing that and my girlfriend made me promise that I would put out at least 100 episodes. And I was like, uh, okay. And she held me to that. And I actually ended up putting out 137 episodes in a row. So one every single day for 137 days. And then reached a point where I was just like, okay, this is taking up way too much time. Um, and you know, like it, it was pretty crazy. Some of the things I do, I would, I would be driving my kids to work and then I would pull into the Starbucks parking lot and take you know, like 45 minutes and just in my, my BMW SUV, you know, sitting in the back seat, it seemed kind of creepy at the time, but it's what I need to do. And just recorded my podcast there before I went into work, because if I try to leave straight from there, the traffic was pretty bad and everything. But so I'd recorded that and then I'd post it right from there using the Starbucks Wi-Fi. Um, and did that for, yeah, for a couple of months. It was kind of wild. And over time got to where I was doing it pretty good. You know, it, it became much more fluid. Then I switched over using Logic. And um, like I said, got 237, switched it to a weekly podcast. Um, did 30 of those, took a year and a half off, and then started up this last year. And now I'm at, what, 211, I think was my latest one. So, Yeah. So that's kind of the the long version, unfortunately, the the not short version of how this all started. No, that's why we're here. We appreciate long versions. That 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 would be the other name of my other podcast if I started one. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's why we're here. There's a bunch of different directions I could go. I could definitely even go in the ad story more. Uh, just you know, you know, basing that off of my curiosity. But I would love to kind of take it back a little bit. And as you said, you purchased uh, Ryan Holiday's book. You know, he's a he's a, a figure in this kind of stoicism realm. Um, you know, a public figure in that way. And and yeah, I've definitely consumed a lot of his stuff as well. But um, you know, you start writing in the journal. But was there stoicism before that? Like, when was it introduced into your life? And and then I, you know, we're kind of we'll take it into the the podcast. And then I'd love definitely love to talk on some topics as well. But but how was that stoicism itself? introduced into your life um basically through just like a lot of people um listen to tim ferris uh not religiously but i listen to him from time to time i kind of go through spurts where you know I'll, I'll see something that sounds interesting and back in 2017 or 2016 he mentioned uh at the end of one of his episodes you know that he really really loved the book the art of stoic joy or, or the good life I think it's called The Good Life, The Art of Stoic Joy by William Irvine. Um, I'm totally flubbing the title right now because it's it's a title and a subtitle. But, um, but he said it was the 
one of the most influential books that he'd ever read in his life and had basically changed the course of his life in some ways. And I was like, okay, Tim isn't given to hyperbole about things. And so if he says, hey, this is a book that changed my life, there's a pretty good chance of that because he reads a lot of stuff. And there's plenty that he probably, I mean, there's probably hundreds or even thousands of books that he's read and probably has not, you know, not recommended those. It's like, okay, you know, the art of stoic joy, that just sounded really contradictory or paradoxical to me. And so I was like, okay, I've got to understand this. So I bought the book, read it, and it, the first time through, it didn't really click for me. I'm not sure why that is or what that what what wasn't working there, but it just didn't click. And so I think it was probably about four or five months later, I was like, okay, let me try this again. And I had an Audible subscription, so I just bought it on there and I just listened to it. And, you know, every day going into work and back, I just listened to it. And it was then that second time through that I had a lot of those aha moments where it's like, oh, okay, that makes, whoa, that makes, let me think about this. You know, I pause it and I'd sit and think about that while I'm driving along and just kind of, you know, rolling this through my mind. And then um, picking up Ryan's journal was just more of like, I think on Amazon, they was giving suggestions for Christmas things. And that just happened to come up, I think, because I bought this William Irvine book before and, you know, coming around the new year, resolutions and all that. I'm like, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea to do the whole New Year's resolution thing and, and write on this. And th that process of taking every single day and just writing a paragraph about stoicism using those journal prompts was really something that helped solidify it a lot for me. And like I said, I, so for me, the podcast really just came out of, it was the thing that it was interesting to me at that time. And so therefore, that's what my podcast became about. It, it, it wasn't that I said, oh, I have to make a podcast on stoicism. It was like, I want to do a podcast and what am I going to talk about? Hey, here are two things, smashed them together and that's what you got. So, and I found that obviously doing the podcast was something that really helped to cement these principles in there because I talk about them every single week. And so that deep dive that I do into that has definitely helped cement these principles and I think about them a lot and how to express them to other people. And so that's been really helpful for me as well. I, I joke around and call it my public therapy. Yeah, uh, it, and it holds you accountable as well. Yeah, I mean, the, I found you through your podcast. It got recommended on Spotify or, or something. Hey, shout out to Spotify. Algorithms are working. Gotta love it. Um, we have no idea how they're working, but they're working. Um, your podcast got to me somehow because I was interested in Tim Ferriss and probably buying and buying audible uh tower of seneca on audible um we're kind of i'm kind of speaking chinese here for people who probably think of stoic as just their the face their dad makes um when he doesn't express any emotion i mean i just when i thought about stoicism i was like does that mean you just don't talk or have emotions or, like that was the baseline level of my understanding of stoicism itself very naive but i feel like i didn't even think i didn't even know it was a thing you're not taught this but and and i kind of equate it to some like if you were trying to explain it maybe has a religious type of vibe to it i guess you could say it's it's principles right so as you say in your podcast um you know it's about uh what does it act on your principles right uh so that's really what it is but if you could um give your own definition uh of of kind of stoicism or or maybe you know relate it to how it works in your life but i just would like to set some context on like for people who don't understand what it is past 
maybe just a blank face of somebody. Um, can you speak a little bit on, on that? For sure. Um, I think I think the problem with stoicism is that it has a, a bad marketing that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, attached to it. So the brand, the brand has already kind of been cemented over the uh, the centuries, and you know this is understandable though. I mean, and so where the term comes from originally is called the, the stoa, which was a porch in Greece, or no, I think in Rome. I'm sorry, um, uh, stoa polka, which meant the painted porch, and basically the Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, Mark. You know, Marcus Aurelius didn't, but Epictetus and uh, I think Seneca was probably there. Zeno of Cilium, a bunch of other ones would get up and they would talk about Stoicism just out in this public square. You know, this painted porch that was there, um, and so it, it was. You know, it was a very accessible uh, philosophy, and kind of the main tenets of Stoicism, and this is why it, it's it's very very powerful, is that. These things are true no matter what, and at least they're principles that I found that are exceptionally true, and they can be applied in almost every situation, and because they're not doctrinal, they're not dogma, they're not like, you know, you have to make sure that you, you know, stand on your left foot and, you know, point to the West every time, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. There's nothing that you have to do that way. It's just general principles that can be, that help you shape your perspective. Uh, and for me, the main thing is what I call the kind of the two the two sided coin, and that that's when you're talking about control. And the biggest thing about stoicism is that it's understanding that there are very few things you have control over in your life. And the problem is is that we spend a lot of time trying to control things that are outside of our control. And what are the things outside of our control that we really try to control a lot? I think a lot of people try to control other people. They try to control their reputation. They try to control all kinds of things or manipulate things or influence things that they really don't have any control over. And there are very few things they actually do control. And of those, it really comes down to you can control the way that you think. You can control the way that you feel about things by controlling your thinking. And you can control your, your will, which is your choices and your actions. And that's really about it. And... That, for a lot of people, it takes a little bit of time to really digest that and understand exactly what that means. Because some people are like, well, I can't control how I feel about something. And, and you're right, oftentimes you really can't control how you feel. But when you think about your emotions are caused by what you're thinking, and they're caused by your perspective. And that's another big thing is that Stoics are very big about understanding your perspective. You have to understand how you see something. And your perspective may be right, it may be wrong, but it doesn't really matter because your perspective, the way that you view the world, is what causes the thoughts that you have in your head. And those thoughts are the things that create the emotions you have. And based upon those emotions, you're going to make choices and take certain actions. And so understanding that whole chain of processes of things and the process that you, you know, understanding that whole process of your chain of thinking is really, really important. And discerning what you have control over and what you don't have control over is really, really challenging. Um, and part of it is like even our language. Our language is not set up in a way that, that, that sets itself very well to recognize what you have control over. For example, if you get upset about something, you usually say, that made me mad or this person made me mad. And that's not the case at all. 
what happened was is that something happened. Somebody said something, somebody did something. You had a thought about that. You had a perception about that. You went, okay, this person did X, and because of that, this is what it means. So maybe somebody, you know, called you a name or something or tried insulting you. And because of that, you had a thought about that. They insulted me. I'm so offended. I'm upset. This was rude. Oh, my gosh. You know, they're disrespecting me. Whatever it is that they're doing, you had a thought about that. And that thought creates some kind of emotion. If you feel disrespected, you might get angry back. You might get upset at them because you feel like they're disrespecting you. And disrespecting you means something. So we find in a lot of a lot of arguments where people end up getting killed back, you know, having a bar fight or something like that, because he was disrespecting me. Well, what does that really mean? The person may have been disrespecting you, but what you made that disrespect mean totally matters. Because if somebody disrespects me, if somebody calls me short or calls me bald or calls me whatever, or tries to insult me in some way, it's only if I take offense at that that I get angry about it. I mean, they can, if I don't give a shit what somebody says about me, if I don't care what somebody says about me, they can say all the mean, rude, cruel, awful things about me. And if I just kind of look at it and be like, okay, whatever, those are just words coming out of your mouth and I don't care what you say, then I'm not angry about it. And something as simple as that, while it sounds easy, is, is still pretty challenging. But I think for me, that's oftentimes a, an example that I have to kind of remind myself of is that if I don't care about this person, if I'm not worried about anything that they have to say, if I don't give any weight to their words, then I'm not going to be upset. And I think that's a very simple example of something you have control over. You decide if you want to get angry or not. Yeah, I think Mark Manson said this, um, subtle art of not giving a fuck. Mm-hmm. Not sure if you've... Yeah, so very... I really I really like his work. Um, he, I, I, he has like a framework, right. For going through arguments, especially with in your relationship. And like, I, I think the first question is, is, is this true? Yes. Yes. We, how crazy is it that we convince ourselves of things that aren't even true? Yeah. I mean, how many times have you been in an argument where you've taken something that somebody said and twisted it around to make it mean what you want it to, or they said this, which really means this other thing. Well, they didn't say that, did they? Yes, 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 and that's it. Yeah, and and to fit your narrative that maybe most likely is unconscious, like to an extent. I'm not saying unconscious where you're not taking responsibility for it. It's unconscious in the way that you're not even recognizing that you created the narrative that may not even be true. Yeah, yeah, and that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, there's so many. Um, so many like situation comedies, for example, or romantic comedies and stuff like that are all based upon assumptions that people make. People read the situation wrong. They create a narrative about what happened. Oh my gosh, so-and-so did was seen walking with this other person. So that means, and then because of that miscommunication or that misinterpretation of what's happening, it, it sets off a whole series of things. And I mean, and you know, that's kind of the, the, the human foible or the fun of it, if you will. And Shakespeare was was tremendous at this as well. I mean, he would just, half of his comedies were just people misinterpreting things. Like Comedy of Errors, for example, is that way. You know, Much Ado About Nothing, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. All of these things are just about people misreading a situation and the fallout from their assumptions that they make. And if people would just stop for a moment and ask, one, is this true? And 
then ask themselves again, am I sure that this is true or is this something that I've convinced myself or did I mishear something? Do I know the absolute fact? And sometimes even just asking yourself, you know, this may be true, but is there also something that is just as likely? I mean, oftentimes, I mean, which goes along with one of my favorite sayings, which is don't assume malice when stupidity is just as likely. And it's that idea that oftentimes somebody will do something and we will get furious at them because we think they're being malicious when they may just be ignorant. They may not have a clue that they did anything that upset you or they may have been trying to do something and they just did it the wrong way and that upset you. You know, they weren't necessarily malicious about it. They just weren't very, very intelligent about it. Ambiguity is taken as negative. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Lack of details is is malice you know um like no response is taken as a negative it's like what if that person just needs some time <laughs> you know yeah. um yeah definitely and i i so i think that control is probably one of the biggest points of stoicism um and that when you understand that there are things you do control and you can't control and being very clear about that that's incredibly helpful and like i like i mentioned earlier i call it kind of the two sides of the same coin and that is, if you are controlling the things you can control, then, and you are, you're taking responsibility for yourself, you're taking responsibility for your actions, your choices, your emotions, and you're not blaming somebody else, then you're being most effective with what it is that you're working on and what you're and dealing with the situation. If you are blaming everybody else for what's going on and you are trying, or you are trying to control other people, then you are not being effective. You're wasting your time and your energy and in more cases, you're becoming a victim because you are blaming everybody else for what's happening in your life. So, and that's, that's a, it's a hard, hard thing because it's really just a lot easier. And you may not even notice that you're doing it, that you're blaming outside things for your unhappiness or what's going on in your life. But when you do that, when you blame everything outside yourself, you are becoming a victim. And a whole can of worms that can be can be opened up is kind of the landscape of this social media kind of twitter facebook landscape um which is really just blows my mind a lot of times like in the way and what i'm trying to get at is the fact that it's it's always easier like fact it's always easier to blame somebody else right yeah so absolutely automatically if you're blaming somebody else you automatically <clears throat> took the easy route Right. Mm -hmm. Like you took the fastest way to make yourself feel good. So that's number one. So I get that. I understand why people do that because it's easy. That's the easiest yeah. thing to do. But you're in this place where somebody literally is a comedian and makes a joke about something. Right. Does their job. OK. And I'm not I'm not going to throw out. Like I said, it's a can of worms. I, I don't want to open. It's an hour. Mm -hmm. But that's that's been put the victimization. It's like. It's like recreational victimhood, you know, where it's like, I'm blaming you for saying this because I feel a way about it. Yeah. But I'm in charge of how I feel, but I'm letting this person control how I feel, but it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. That's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see that a lot where, where you see comedians getting canceled and stuff like that, or, you know, I'm not going to go much into cancel culture. But you're absolutely right, is that they are blaming, like you said, they're blaming somebody else for how they feel and making it the other person's fault for their emotion. 
which is kind of ridiculous. Like I said, if, if you don't care what the other person says, it doesn't bother you. They could be standing in your face screaming at you, spit flying out of their mouth. And if you don't give a shit about what they have to say, it's not going to bother you. You'll just be like, dude, you know, can I get you a value? Maybe a beer? You know, can just chill out, you know, whatever. I don't care. But if you give weight to that, if you give your power over to that other person, if you say, you know, I'm so offended by what you said and you know, and you, you're the one who chooses to get offended. And that's another thing that people have a really, really hard time with. Now, that's not to say that something that somebody says is not offensive, because they can say things that are offensive, for sure. But it's your choice to be offended. And that's, those are kind of two different things. And that's where a lot of people have a really hard time. Well, they said something rude. Yes, yes, they did. Absolutely. And you should call them out for those things. But if you're going to let them... If you're going to get riled up and get angry and upset about that thing, that's you choosing to get riled and upset about that. It's not the other person's fault. Yeah, I just love like I just don't think it's a good use of energy, but that's me. I people actually follow people follow people that they don't like so they can complain about them. So then give them more reach so then they can find more people that don't like them and like them, you know? Like they're empowering by making that like i was just i won't go into this whole story because i already told it on the podcast but i was in a podcasting facebook group that should be the red flag but i was in there i was talking i was talking my shit hey if you're not releasing video i think you're missing out on some opportunities listen that's an opinion that's an opinion so like i put this all out there and then i got just berated right and i got banned from the page and it was this whole thing and that just showed me like people didn't realize that them commenting on the post is what made it so big like just commenting and attacking me personally like not say, attacking anything that i said you know, you know what i'm saying so like yeah but it's just insane and that dealt that kind of transitions into the topic of resources finite resources you know time energy um and i love i just re-listened back to i don't remember the exact episode you might remember it about um how time is a finite resource i'm not sure if that was the whole episode but i think it, it's something like that maybe you only live once or life is long or something like that um i don't remember the exact episode that you did but um it really it's just amazing to me how we give our time away like it's nothing but then we don't buy our friends a dinner you know what I'm saying? Where it's like, it took me an hour of work to make this, but then I'll spend an hour over here. You know, it's like this weird, like time money equation we do in our minds that doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, that side of it too. I just, I don't know. I structure my time so specifically and I don't understand how other people don't do that, but I don't know. Maybe I just, there's a level of like crazy that I'm on for sure, but I just think that we're just giving it away. And I, and really the thing is I'm trying to I'm trying to let people know this when they're young so that when they're old they don't feel like they just gave their time away and didn't do anything productive with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um I think that's very true. I mean like if you're arguing with somebody on Facebook, I mean you're just you're and you're you know like you said flame wars or trolls or whatever, you know, those kind of things. It's it's gets to the point of being ridiculous because you're wasting all this time on something that that maybe makes you feel good because I mean, let's let's be honest. Flaming or trashing somebody that you're upset with, it feels good. It it does to a certain extent. It feels powerful. But the thing is, is it's really very powerless. 
Because you can flame somebody all you want on Facebook and spend all this time and energy doing it, but what have you really done at the end of the day? I mean, if you want to change, you know, and they've shown that the more that you attack somebody directly, the more resistant they are. So if you want to change somebody's mind, you ask them questions. You say, okay, well, why do you think that way? Why do you feel that way? And that, that's kind of funny that, uh, that people would trash on you for saying that, hey, you know, video might be a good option for you. Oh my gosh, how would you dare you say that? And it's like, well, <laughs> Yeah, I just said you're missing out. That's all I'm saying. Like, if you want more, then this is an opportunity to get more. But you have to do more, but you can get more. Like, here's the opportunity. But yeah, that was crazy, <laughs> you know? And I framed it, I specifically, like, I write out these posts so they're accurate. So you can, at face value, you might feel a certain way, but then really read it. You'll see that everything that I say is, is, is I try to really not put any fluff in there and not provoke, you know? That wasn't my goal, but hey, you know, it happened. But I just thought it was a great example. <laughs> One of the things that people do have a really hard time with is they want to control the reactions of other people and they want to control other people. And so oftentimes people will get angry because they're trying to bully you. They're trying to control you in some way. And so people lashing out at you, basically you, you pointed out an opinion that they disagreed with and they wanted to prove you wrong and they wanted to control you. So lashing out angrily is a way to do that. And the thing is, is it doesn't really work because you're trying to control something that you can't. Yeah, it's that's it, and and yeah, the reactions. It's that's so weird to me. Like, um, you can people could get mad for 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 not reacting, right? And that's like a whole thing, right? Um, a lot of companies trying to be inclusive, right, or trying to be green, or like doing things just for the vanity, you know. And that's really what that is. It's like you want me to have a reaction so you can feel good, but. Even if my reaction is not genuinely me, you know, <laughs> like, what if I just don't react to that? <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, brutal. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's, it's a balance of validation. People want to feel validated in their point of view. And if they can bully you into their point of view, it helps them feel validated. Because they're, usually it's because they're insecure about something. And so we all want to feel validated. And the thing is, is that forcing somebody to validate your point of view isn't really validation. That's bullying, like I said. So, I mean, if somebody came up to you and, you know, it had responded to that, for example, and said, you know, I've tried video and I found that it really didn't work for me. It was something that just, I'm, I'm too... Yeah, that's what people said, and which was great. Then I talked yeah. to them and we had a conversation. Yeah, they said, great. you know, I, I just find that I'm too awkward on video and I don't, I don't really like it or, or whatever it is that their thing is. Yeah, that's a totally different story, but... Yeah, people are interesting. Um, and like I said, I think that people want people want their worldview to be the right one. And they have a hard time when people don't agree with them, which is why we're finding so much divisiveness in, in our country right now is because each side thinks the other side needs to agree with them. And, you know, I have my opinions about things, and I'm not saying that the other side has to be on my side. I wish they were because I do my best to make mine fact-based and logic-based and science-based and, and you know, look long-term and think what's going to be the best for everybody, what's going to have the best outcome overall for all of us. But that takes time, that takes energy, that takes effort, and people, people ne don't necessarily want to do that. They want the easy way because, you know, thinking and, and learning and reading and doing those types of things, it's hard, it's challenging, it takes effort. And, you know, they, they want things just to work out their way. And for them, 
if everybody just, you know, supports their point of view, then it works. It's easy for them. It's easier to try and just because then you don't actually have to put the effort into it. Yeah. And, and, it, and it really blows you out of the water when you when you come come somebody combats you with something that completely breaks down your ideology that you've been believing so long. You know, and like that's when I feel the same way that a lot of people feel like that's when I have like and I'm like, no, I believe this. Like, you know, you feel it in your chest. You feel it. Your, your adrenaline starts going. Your face gets red and stuff. You're like, ah, I got to defend this. And and, uh, you know, the antidote or and, and that's positive. That's very positive. I've found. And um, yeah, like you said, like kind of um, earlier on, which is really just diving into these people's thought processes. That's really what's going to get you um f- the farthest you know the best and and what i love what joe rogan said i'm not sure if this is like his quote or whatever but he always says that the antidote to speech you don't like is just better speech it's not shutting it down you know um but people don't have these conversations they don't really have conversations it's 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 just back and forth and and it's 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 not the, and both sides have not agreed you know to to have a conversation they've both agreed to fight each other you know yeah yeah, and I don't know if there's an easy way to be able to combat that or change that because uh, you know, there are a lot of vested interests and there are so many conflicting things. Um, there was a great article I was reading the other day. Um, I haven't finished it, um, which I can send to you, but what I really liked about it is it talked about the idea of there are logical beliefs and then there are social beliefs. And one of them is, you know, here's the truth about something. So say that you you have a belief about how you want to live your life. And it's, you know, it's very logical, it's very fact-based, and everything works, you know, this is how things work. I mean, and, and those are things that, that make sense to us. Like, if I want to, you know, if I want to be a good runner, I need to, you know, I need to run every day, I need to stretch, I need to eat right, I need to do all of these things. Those are very logic-based. Those are just your... Your, your baseline things. These are the things you do, and this is the results you're going to get. Then you have your social beliefs, which are radically different. So say that you're on a cross-country team, and in order for you to actually be able to run, you don't just have to be fast, but the coach has to like you. And how to get the coach to like you? Well, the coach has all of these weird things that you need to do. You need to you know, stay, you know, know, wake up every morning and video take a video of yourself standing on your head for 10 minutes or or maybe you have to take his son out to dinner every, you know, once a week, and then the coach will do his thing. It's not a logical belief. It's not something that's logical that actually works. It's not something that you have to do to make you a better runner. But if you want to be in the game, it's a social belief. It's something that you have to follow. And the coach's son might be an absolute jerk, and you hate having to do dinner with him, and you hate the fact that you have to pay for this. But that's what gets you out there running. That's the thing that the coach is going to go, yep, you took my son out this week, so therefore you get to run. You know, so we hold social beliefs because they are things that benefit us within the social culture that we find ourselves in. And so that's why you find belief systems that are very geographically located. You will have these things where, you know, you'll have large pockets of conservatives in some areas, large pockets of liberals in other areas, because... There are social beliefs that get handed around because of the environment that you that you live in. And people don't really take those into account. And they just think, well, no, I believe this, so this is the way it is. Not understanding, oh, I believe this because this is how I need to operate within this framework. So I grew up in a very religious community, and 
I didn't necessarily believe it, but I had to profess that I believed all of these things, which plenty of them didn't make sense to me. Um, because there was a social belief that I had to hold in order to be able to function within this community. And then once I left that community, it was, you know, it was kind of like, okay, now I, don't have, now I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to say these things that I never really believed because they didn't make any sense to me. And when people confuse social beliefs with, you know, actual real factual beliefs is what I call them, or rational beliefs, then they start to then they're basically they're not operating off of the same playbook with people. Like I said, you know, if you met a runner from Kenya and you guys were discussing running just from purely logical point of view, you guys would probably be on the same page for a lot of things. You know, high altitude training is really great for you. Hey, these shoes are really great running shoes for you. Hey, this diet is really good for you because, you know, it has all of these different nutrients in there. Those are things that you guys could even you be on the same page about without much of a problem. But if you start talking about your social beliefs about running, then you're opening up a whole nother world of things where, wait, you have to do what in order to be able to run in these races? Your coach says you have to do what? You know, and so it, for me, that was just really, really fascinating that we will hold beliefs that we don't necessarily believe, but they serve us well. And we need to be very clear that we understand those things. Yeah, and and it's just what we've been told. It's like not even our fault to an extent. You know, um, I was talking to my friend the other day. He's like, yeah, the the, the government, um, you know, pumped all this money with unemployment and everything into the system, you know, and he's like, it's inflation. It's crazy. And neither of us are financial experts. Right. But that's what he believes. And then I said, well, what about the percentage of other what about all the other countries in the world that use the American dollar and most of the American money isn't even in this country? And then he goes, well, yeah, I didn't, well, I don't really think about that. And you know what I'm saying? So like, and, and that happens to me every day, but like, that's just an example of like, he had this belief because he believed somebody that said that. And then, and I, so did I, I was at the same point. Then I heard the counterpoint and I went, oh, I like that counterpoint. Like now I can have, now I hold both points. So now I gave him a counterpoint. So now he holds both points, you know? Um, and one might be a logical, one might be a social. They mo both might be social. Um, but yeah, in that case, probably both social because it was just learned from somebody who we trusted. And so that's another thing too. It's like, I've been watching Joe Rogan for seven, eight years, man. I think a lot of shit that he thinks because I've just put it into my brain. But I also disagree with a lot of it. I've also learned and read books on, on those points to kind of learn up on it and make sure. But it's like, all of our figures, um, we we just kind of trust, like a lot of these figures blatantly, and uh, people who I really enjoy, you know, whether it's the news or the mainstream media is not the news anymore. So that's, in my opinion, that's an opinion, I guess, maybe that's a social belief, but, but, but kind of all these figures, you know what I'm saying? Like, we've just very much put trust in people, and in they're just people, but they're on a platform, so we don't hold them to the same value as we hold to some guy in the street, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the, this goes back to, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine a while back about this issue because, and, and it, it kind of wrapped around from some other things, but um, it's the, it's the problem of trusted sources. And the problem with trusted sources is that we all use trusted sources. We look at people to get our information on because we can't be experts on everything. Like I can't be a, you know, a biophysicist or I can't, you know, be a, a neurologist and I can't be all of these things to know everything that I need to do to, you know, live a better life. So I have to trust people. I have to decide who is worth trusting. And 
The problem is, is that so many of our trusted sources are, have become people who actually don't have an expertise in something. And because of that, they are very persuasive, they are charismatic and so on, but they aren't experts in these things. And they will, you know, because of their own foibles and because of their own problems, they will misrepresent things. And because, you know, for, for a number of reasons, one, because they either, maybe they're misinformed. They're tr- they went to some trusted source that they follow, and that trusted source had some completely ulterior agenda. Um, we, we see that all the time. There are plenty of people who publish false reports on all kinds of things because they were being paid by somebody else to do those kind of things. So, I mean, and we see that all the time. So, but if we're not willing to look at our trusted source and and look at them and say, hmm, they could be wrong, and is it just as likely that the other thing is right as well and do our own research, then it's really, it, it becomes very challenging. And I think the problem is, is that we, we really need to be careful about who we consider our trusted sources. And I think one of the biggest problems is that there are a lot of trusted sources that traditional things that have been basically... Uh, denigrated, if you will, because of political gain, because people have a political agenda. And so therefore, they are denigrating these things, not necessarily because they, they truly believe this other thing is wrong, but because it buys, it buys them political points. For example, you know, there are a lot of people who denigrate a lot of the institutions of government. Well, why are these institutions of government there? Why is the National Institute of Health there? Why is the CDC there? Why are all of these things there? And why do we have a lot of these regulations, for example? I mean, there are people who complain about the fact that you have to get a license, you know, from the Department of Health to open a restaurant. You know, and then the Department of, you know, the Department of Health has all these regulations that you need to follow. And people are always complaining about those regulations. But the thing is, those regulations were put in place for a very good reason. You know, and a lot of these rules that have been on the books for 100 years, 200 years or something like that, people are like, well, that's just obvious. Why is this even, you know, on the book? Why does it say that we have to wash our hands after we use the bathroom when we're working as a server in a restaurant? That's dumb. It's like, you know, we don't need that as a law. And it's like, well, actually, at one point, we did need that as a law because people didn't do that. They didn't understand that thing. And the reason why we keep it as a law is so that we remember it's our institutional memory. And these organizations have been put in place so that we can remember and learn these things. I mean, think about it this way. Back in the day, when the Romans came up with their aquifer, so they came up with a, basically a sewage system. Do you know how many people stopped dying in Roman cities because of that? Because they had sanitation. Something as simple as that. When the Roman Empire fell, we fell back into a lot of the Dark Ages over time. And we've, we ran into a lot of these things. And we had the dark, you know, the Black Plague happening and so on with, you know, all of these things, you know. And then when Europe decided, hey, you know what, why don't we upgrade our sanitation systems? Suddenly a lot of these diseases like cholera and things disappeared. People didn't get them anymore because they decided that sanitation was a big thing. And so we have these people who come along and want to score political points. So they denigrate a lot of these institutions that we have and use them as a punching bag or a scapegoat for anything that's happening. And so then people start to mistrust these institutions that have been trusted to carry our institutional knowledge, to carry our knowledge from generation to generation. And I think that's doing a disservice to us as a country. It's doing a disservice to us as the world. But it's because they want, they, 
they need somebody to scapegoat and people are much easier to control if they're afraid of something. So if people are afraid of this thing that's coming along, as we see in COVID that's happened a lot, then why not point out to this other person who is telling them what to do that they're they have some kind of hidden agenda and we know what that agenda is and they ascribe all kinds of you know maliciousness to these people when these people are public servants for example who have dedicated their careers their whole lives to moving the public good forward and unfortunately now these people are being maligned they have death threats and stuff like that and all they want to do is study science study diseases and make sure that we as, a, as humanity are a little bit better off and a little less sick. And they're getting death threats for these things. And that, you know, so I know that's a long roundabout way to kind of go on a historical thing. But I was thinking about it a while back um, about why we have, you know, the Institutes of Health and other things like that and all kinds of organizations and regulations and these things. And it's because we need to keep that knowledge so that we can continue to move forward so that we don't falter and we don't forget these things because these are the things that helped bring us progress. And some, like I said, something as simple as sewage. A sewage system has saved so many hundreds of millions of lives over the last you know, few centuries. Yeah, people will take the unemployment check and then shit all over the government. Exactly. So I had a friend, for example, who his dad was on disability, even though he didn't really need to be, but he was on disability. And yet he would complain about, you know, people who are on welfare. And just, you know, just was incredibly racist to anybody who, but also, you know, incredibly denigrating on anybody who was poor, who needed help from the government. And yet that's exactly what he was doing. And I, it's like, dude, you're on welfare. They just call it a different thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I find, I find the way that people justify things very interesting. People are messy and, you know, and. You know, some of these things I don't really talk about on my show because I have my very strong opinions about things. I try to keep my... I've read, I've read some of a few reviews. Yeah. <laughs> even on Apple Podcasts, I, got, I didn't even expect some of them. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't agree with this, but... Yeah, there was... I get a few here and there, and I get people who write me sometimes saying, stop being political. And I'm like, are you... So, all right. I will just say, <laughs> somebody said that you're like leaning. I'm like, I've never heard him. I just... I, I don't know. I've never even had a political thought from anything that you've even said, and you may have, and maybe I didn't think about it like that, but I don't, I don't know. For me as a listener, I, I haven't even heard you, so I wouldn't, there was no point where I was like, oh, he's definitely hugging a side on this sto point about stoicism. Yeah, yeah, I found that one pretty funny, and uh, I think what it came down to, though, is the fact that uh, there's been a couple of times where I've mentioned that racism is incompatible with stoicism, because race is something that somebody can't control. They can't control what color their skin is, what who their parents were, where they were born. They have absolutely no control over that. And so because somebody can't be responsible for things that they have no control over, you are blaming somebody for their skin color. They have no control over that. And so that was one thing I pointed out. I said racism is just incompatible with stoicism. And so people, I got emails about that. You know, why, why are you bringing politics into this? I'm like, that's not political. That's not political at all. Racism can take, racism transcends politics. People will hate other races just because they hate other races. And they can be on the left, they can be on the right, they can be center, they can be green. I mean, so it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not, to me, is not a political thing. Um, another thing is that I mentioned privilege. I talked about how because of the color of your skin, you are going to have certain privileges. I mean, me as a white guy here in America, you know, in the tax bracket I'm in, you know, because I'm a software developer, I have certain privileges. 
when I get pulled over by a cop, I'm never worried that I'm going to get shot. That's not even, doesn't even anything that crossed my mind. But a friend of mine who I worked with for a number of years, six foot black guy, you know, 210 pounds, you know, he talks about, about making sure if he's ever pulled over that he is, his behavior is impeccable because he's worried that he might not make it home to his wife and kids that night. And that's not anything I ever have to worry about. And so things like that, where I mentioned things like that, people get all bent out of shape because they don't want to hear that America has a racist past. It's, but the fact that we enslaved millions and millions of black people says we has a, have a racist past. It's that simple. And to deny it is just denying reality. Yeah. And, 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 and it's classism. Listen, like there's classism too. I think that's, I mean, listen, there's Absolutely. white slums. There's black slums. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. Absolutely. And 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 yeah. yeah, so there's that too. And 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 a hundred percent, it was literally systematically created to put black people in certain neighborhoods to make sure that they that's that's just you can you can look it up. I mean, government had a hand yeah. in it, you know, obviously. This is yeah, we do have a racist past. That's that's obvious. I mean, many, many countries do as well. Um and and I think you know what it is too? Um yeah, I had an argument, not, I mean, I guess a discussion, but it might have turned to an argument, but it was, it was about racism and power. And they said, racism is about power. And I, like, I, I do understand that, but I think there can be just racism without power. Like, I, I, I think that you can just be racist to somebody and, and, and they can be six foot five and be able to destroy you physically. And then you can be five foot two. And it's like, that guy probably has the power who you're being racist to, but you can be racist to him. So um, I I think like, but I think now as well, we don't really go that far back to, to look at kind of history, you know, um, beyond our country even. Um, And, and, and it's just the actual, and I'm not saying I'm an expert, but (laughs) at all in any of these, but I think, yeah, to, um, to have it be like one side or the other, I just, with me for anything, I'm not politically on any side. Um, you know, I go by topic, you know, let run it by me. I'll let you know where I stand type of deal. Um, but I think that's that kind of, um, you know, that it really comes from the hugging. I think just this staying on one side. And, and I feel like in the past, whether it's the past few years or four or five or past two whatever you want to have whatever time frame you want i think that and i don't know if this is true but the way that i think about it is people who were kind of not really on a side but they were like on a side but just a little bit like i they would consider themselves right wing but they weren't far right wing people i think people were forced to jump to their side and now the people who are in the middle are like what do we do like, I can't pick a side here, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's how I felt. That's how I felt since I was, since I found um, atheism and since I started questioning everything when I was like 16, you know, I've always felt that way. I've always felt like I don't like either of these sides. I don't like any of these religions. I don't vibe with any of them. I don't believe in any, per- I believe in particular parts of all of them. But yeah, I think um, a lot of that does come from like the lack of being able to kind of clearly look at both sides. Because if you're on one, there's no way you're going to be able to clearly look at your own. You might be able to, you probably have a better view of the other side than you do your own, you know? So yeah, yeah that's not interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, if you want to, there's nothing wrong with, with listening to criticism of your point of view, because there's a good chance that you might be wrong and that's okay. It's when the other person, again, trusted sources who have some type of agenda, 
they're selling something, if they want certain types of power, they and, and basically what they're not giving you is the truth. They're lying. And that's really what it comes down to. And it's hard to discern that because you have trusted this person and you go, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with these things. Yeah, that's really, really great. But never believe anybody wholeheartedly. And that was one of the problems that I had in the religion I was in was that it was more important to be loyal than it was to be truthful. So, and they even said that. They said obedience is more important than anything. And I was like, well, wait a second, but what if... What if one of the leaders... Is this like Marxism or what's happening? Yeah. I mean, basically, if one of the leaders of the church says, you know, I should go out and shoot my neighbor, I'm not going to obey that. You know, I'm not saying that they would, for example. But there was there was this idea that was brought up very often that you weren't allowed to, you know, you, should, you shouldn't read anything that was against the church. You shouldn't speak anything against the church. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't step out and try and discover these things on your own. It was just, you know, if we say it, it's true. And they wanted you to believe them over everything else. And I just had a really tough time with that, especially when, you know, because I was big into science. And, you know, I mean, I would read these things and go, well, you're telling me this, but the science and the data show this. So I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go with what I can prove because you, I can't just take your word on it because it's just your word. It's you saying, trust me. And if anybody has to tell me to trust them, that always makes me nervous. When somebody says, yeah, well, trust me, I'm... I'm, I'm this or I'm that, or trust me. It's like, well, I was trusting you, but are you saying that there's a reason why I shouldn't trust you? Yes, that's when the question gets raised, once they're so far on that side of things. Yeah, so, but I think you're right. I think that, and this is a good case of where a lot of the social belief is what drive people as opposed to um, logical beliefs, but they confuse those social beliefs with logical beliefs. And so when people, you know, hue far to one political side or the other it is often is not often it's not usually because it's a logical belief it's a social belief i mean if you lived in soviet union and i grew up during the time of the, you know i was a teenager and actually went to the soviet union while it was still the soviet union um people didn't necessarily believe in communism and, and which that form of communism was really truly authoritarianism and but people like to just brand anything to the left as commie or socialist and you know, I lived in a socialist democracy in Austria for two years, and it's actually a pretty damn good place to live. I really enjoyed living there. But, you know, people followed social or communism not because they truly believed in it, but it was the system that they were born in. And so they followed these belief systems and they, they worked within the system they had because it was the social system where they lived. And if you live somewhere that's very conservative, and I grew up in a very conservative area, you can adopt these beliefs because it's it's what everybody around you is believing. So therefore, yeah, this is just the way the world works. But then when you grow up and you actually start challenging those things and you start seeking more new information, those beliefs can totally change. And that's what happened to me is just the more information I got, the more I learned, the more I experienced. Um, living in Austria was totally different because, again, it's a socialist democracy as opposed to a very capitalistic, conservative democracy where I was living. And I've been told for so long, this you know, things like this are evil, they're bad, you know, this is terrible. I go over to Austria and everybody has health care. There aren't homeless people. You know, you need something and the basics are taken care of for everybody. And here I am trying, you know, at the time I was a missionary for my church, and here I'm trying to tell them, oh, this is the better way to live their life. But most of them were a lot happier than most of the Americans I knew. They were a lot happier than I was for the most part. They still had their troubles and stuff, but... 
they definitely had a higher quality of life than most people, even though, yeah, they paid higher taxes and things like that. But it, for me, it was a big eye-opener because for so long I had been told, this is a terrible way to live, and these people suffer under the, all of these things. And I go over there, and the people were much friendlier, they were much happier, they are much healthier, and it was just like, wait a second. You know, and so trying to reconcile those things was, was a bit challenging. Did you believe that going in, though? Um, or is that just what people, did you kind of go in with the clean slate of like, well, this might be a better way to live? Or did you kind of have those ingrained, because I would, like, I don't even know anything about socialism. You know what I'm saying? And I still would go in and be like, dude, capitalism, let's go. Like, this this, this stuff sucks, man. Like, we start a business. You know what I'm saying? I'd, I'd be in that mindset that I live in. But like, did you go in with those beliefs or, or did you like really try to like reset before? Yeah. No, I definitely went in with those beliefs because where I lived, I grew up in Salt Lake City, exceptionally conservative. And, you know, this whole very, very strong streak of conservatism and anything even on the opposite side or even, you know, center of that was considered wrong. And so I get over there and like I said, you know, seeing that that people are just taken care of. And, you know, they're not living in luxury if they're, if they're not able to work or anything like that. But they, they don't have to worry about, how am I, am I, should I pay for rent or should I buy food? They don't have to worry about, if they got sick, you know, am I, am I going to get fired from my job? If I get sick, am I going to be able to afford health care? They didn't have to worry about those things. And that type of stress taken off of people was huge. And it was just one of those things where it really woke me up and said, well, maybe there are aspects of this that are actually pretty good. But it was also a functioning democracy. People voted and people were able to exercise a lot of these things. And there were plenty of businesses that were going on there. I mean, it's it's painted as a boogeyman because people want to promote their point of view. And so their point of view is capital. Like you said, capitalism is right. And therefore, anything that's the opposite of that is wrong. And it's never that way. And it's never as stark and as absolute about that. And, you know, if I mean, if you want to take it, if you want to take it to, you know, and look at it from a logical perspective, and I know that everybody hates it when you do this, but... Um, if you want to talk about communism, for example, communism in Russia, in the Soviet Union, was not truly what communism was. It, it was authoritarianism. It was a dictatorship for all intents and purposes, just like any other dictatorship anywhere else. And whether that was right wing or left wing, authoritarianism is still going to have the same abuses. So it's just, a, you know, it's a different style or a different, a different way to excuse your excuses of why you're abusing the people around you. And we see that when we have right-wing dictatorships versus left-wing dictatorships. The end result is still pretty much the same. And so people conflate the two, though. They go, oh, this was a left-wing dictatorship, so therefore, see, it's bad. And it's like, no, it's not bad because it's left or right-wing. It's bad because it's a dictatorship. You're missing, you're missing the key element here, which is dictatorship. And I think that, but people don't want to look at those things and because that means that they would have to they would have to put some work into that and it might prove that some of their beliefs are wrong and people don't like to admit when their beliefs are wrong. It's, it's a very challenging thing. Yeah. And I, I really, I really do think you have to experience it, you know, to really know. Um, and obviously you did that and, but nobody else did. So none of us, <laughs> we're all just here just like, Hey, no, yeah, we don't know, but people said this, so we're going to believe it. And that's kind of back to that, the original point to an extent, you know, and I, I would love to experience something like that. Obviously it's, I've always wanted to, but I'm like, nah, the U S is too big. I got to live other places in the U S because it's so big. And why would I leave? And, 
And, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so partial to capitalism. I'm so like, not, I don't, I'm not trying to shut anybody down. I mean, if people are like, it's just amazing to me that people shit on Amazon and then buy Amazon. It's just, I'm like, do you not understand like what's happening here? Like you, that that's level one. If you're not, Hey, Amazon's bad, right? It treats their employees so bad. And my buddy worked at Amazon firsthand anecdote of what happens there. A robot is your manager. Okay. So it's bad. I agree that it's bad, but it's like, then you go and buy, you know, whatever, some flip-flops or something. And it's like, you're contributing in such a small way, but you're contributing. So, you know, where I stand is like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't love Amazon and what they do with their employees, but I support Amazon because I buy from them, you know? Um, so you kind of vote with your dollar a lot in this country. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that the whole, um, I wish I knew more about socialism. I wish I knew more about other, these other forms because I would be able to kind of, you know, um, have a perspective, but I really don't. Uh, I've only experienced this. And, but I guess, you know, to the capitalism kind of on that side of things, it's just worked for me, but you know, but people only tell you what worked for them. Like I started out as a free freelancer. Now I'm LLCing a business because I, freelancing worked out and now, you know, we're taking it to the next level. Um, you know, and, and, but that's worked for me, but people that work for Amazon, maybe that's different, you know, that didn't work for them. So yeah, I mean, so much, so much, um, kind of, we need the experience, I think ultimately, but we're not going to be able to get it. You know, that's a big problem. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, just to kind of, you know, to point out what the things that I really liked about it was, is the idea of socialize. the idea behind socialism is, is being social. It's socializing the things that you all share in common. And in our country, we have plenty of things that are socialized, but people don't want to admit that they, and they don't get that. They just go socialism bad and they don't even understand it. No, it's police, fire department, um, your public restrooms, bike trails, nature reserve roads. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have like, we're like 30% of our stuff is social. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, we all get water from the same place. I mean, can you imagine if you had to go dig your own well and get your own water? I mean, so a lot of these things are socialized. They're, they're run if not completely by the state at least partially i live in the middle of the woods by the way so i have a well there you go so you understand what that's like and (laughs) yeah yeah. but the point is that there are so many things that we do because they are the social good they are it's cheaper and more efficient for us to socialize those things to put them together and these countries decided that healthcare, universal health care was a good thing to do that with and the thing is is that actually their health care costs are cheaper than ours are because of that so people complain about, well, my taxes will go up. Sure, but you're still paying for that health care no matter what. People don't realize that when your employer gives you health care, you, that means you don't get paid as much. I don't know if people realize exactly. that, but it costs the employer something. It's not free for everybody, you know? Absolutely. It's not like you're getting free health care. And the, and the thing is, is that actually having a, a socialized health care system actually encourages entrepreneurship. Do you know why? Because then you can take the risk, because right? Because if... Yeah, Exactly. It encourages risk because then you don't have to worry about, do I stay at this really suck-ass job because I need the health insurance, because my kid needs insulin, because my wife, you know, has something going on. You don't have to worry about those things because it's already taken care of. That's a legitimate problem that I have. Yeah. Like, that I have. And listen, and I'm on, like, I'm good. Like, I have, I'm going to have it for, like, a year or two, and then I'm going to have to do something, you know? And then I'm going to have to make an extra $10,000 a year. Um, just to pay for 
my own that's not probably going to be that good because it's not you know bundled in with a company so you get the best stuff you know yeah i mean that's a legitimate issue yeah and they've actually, face. and they've actually shown that countries that have a good infrastructure system like that um encourage entrepreneurship more so than countries that don't i mean and we like to think that oh it's 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 got to be the opposite because it just costs too much but the thing is the actual cost is cheaper than paying for it by ourselves because it's partially regulated the waste that goes into a lot of these things because most of your dollars for your health care goes to middle management it goes to insurance companies it goes to these people who base the in-betweens it's all the, the people who aren't even yeah yeah it's it's these layers and layers and layers of managers you know this manager over this manager over this manager that are basically taking up all of this money and if you have a direct payer system you cut out all of these middlemen. And so your costs actually go down dramatically. And the providers are the ones that that make the money, not all of these middle managers who are just pushing paper around. So meaning your doctors, for example, would make the money as opposed to all of these managers. You know, I mean, I think there was one company where the CEO of some giant insurance company got like a three quarters of a billion dollar bonus one year. The pharmaceuticals, they're the best. Yeah. <laughs> 200 million dollars because he hit a quota yeah and so things like that were you know that for me for example was just a really big example of that and i'm not here to espouse all of the you know the, the this is so interesting by the way i'm really enjoying this well and for me it's just i love learning about it okay well like i said i'm not here to espouse socialism and tell everybody they need to be socialist or anything these are just my experiences of things that i've i've studied up on i've read on i've learned i've experienced myself and so, you know, and a lot of them, to me, were very straightforward ideas. Like, you know, I never thought about how having universal health care could make it so that you would encourage entrepreneurship. Because everybody's like, oh, but your taxes will be higher, so therefore you couldn't. But then when somebody pointed out, it's like, yeah, but if you don't have to worry about carrying your insurance over or paying for your insurance, if you switch jobs or you start a company or any of those kind of things, it's already taken care of, there's a lot less risk for you. And I was just like, oh, uh... What? Uh, hmm. Are there? I didn't think about. That. Are there rich people that like? Are there? Can you become very wealthy there though? Like, is there like a? Oh, yeah. Okay, got it. So they still have the. This is my limited view. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing is, I mean, I knew plenty of wealthy people over in Austria. Um, they just pay high, know. like pretty high taxes, I guess. It's, yeah. So their margins. See, that's the only. I'm just trying to like look at business impact. I mean, then your margins would then have to account for that. So things might be more expensive, but maybe that's a broad generalization. Mm -hmm. But I could just see be that slightly more. They're going to be a little more expensive for sure. And but but you also have a higher quality of life. I mean, I remember I read this. I was reading this uh, interview. It was a, a CEO. I want to say it was a Swedish. Excuse me, a Swedish company. And it could have been Swedish, but it, maybe it was Norwegian. But anyway, one of the Nordic countries. And he was being interviewed by an American newspaper. And the guy said, you know, it's like, so how do you feel having to pay such high taxes? And it was kind of this flippant question. And he just, the guy just kind of smiled and was just like, you know what? I don't understand why you Americans have such a hard time with taxes. and Why this is such a big issue for you guys. Because he's like, look, I, I grew up in a great country. I got free education. I had free health care. I had all of these things that are great. I don't have to worry about poor people in my country. I don't have to worry about people trying to rob me and come breaking into my house because they're starving. I don't have to worry about so many things. And I benefited from all of these things in my country. And the thing is, is because everybody's a little bit better off, 
People don't have to worry about if they're starving and they don't have to worry about medical bills. They don't have to worry about these things. My whole country is a nicer place to live. And it's this, it's this virtuous cycle that goes back in. I pay more to live in a better country. And, you know, it's just like if you, if you move to a more expensive neighborhood, you're going to pay more. It's just, and that's it. But you live in a better neighborhood. It's that same idea. But he's, he looks at it as investing back into his country. And I thought that, that was a really interesting perspective that I hadn't really thought of it like that. But if nobody's starving, then nobody's going to be wanting to break into your house and steal your stuff so they can have food. Yeah, no, and, and for me, like, it hurts, but I don't mind paying taxes. I just, I don't, the problem, I think the main problem is, is that coming back to it, distrust, um, for sure, and in where these taxes are going and what they're yeah. being used for and what these nitwits are doing with this money. People want to know, because that's an American thing, you want to know, you're very conserved or concerned with your dollar and what's happening with it, and you want to know where it's going. Like, if we put our money, I always had this idea, if you, the people who pay taxes first would get to choose where their money goes, and then it would just fill up. And then if you pay your taxes last, then your money gets dispersed how we need it to get dispersed. But you could choose, I'm going to put mine in roads. And then roads would fill up. And then, sorry, no, no more left for roads. Now we'll go to the next thing. But I think the main, um, and J. Cole said it, rapper J. Cole, he was like, if I, I, will, I wish I could pay, or I want to pay my taxes, I should pay my taxes through an app on my phone. And so... And then see where it goes, but it's so complicated to be able to see where it goes because it's this age-old system that's you know been going on for so long. And and I just I guess the disconnect is is that it's not a tr there's no centralized trust. So maybe in Austria or like some system like that, it's like people just know like yeah this road and this, but but here there's corruption. It's America. You know, so not that there's not there, but I feel like that level of distrust then makes people question and go, okay, now I want to know. Oh, I can't know. Screw you. I don't want to pay these taxes if I don't know. If you're just using them to, to, to put a, to like level a park or something, I want to know that. Is that park going to be gone? You know? So I think that's kind of where people are at. Yeah. And yeah. And, and this is where I think there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of disinformation out there that, that comes because these things are knowable. These things, you can find them out. I mean, these are public records. But the thing is, is it takes time and energy and effort to do that. And people don't want to do that. And so they go to their trusted sources. They go to these people that they trust because they, they're saying things that they like. And, you know, people will follow other people because I like what he said. Did what, or what she said, but did what they say. I mean, is the things that they're saying actually true? We don't actually want to know, though. It's like people are like, I want to know where my taxes go. But then they don't even go, they don't even go on their township, you know, or whatever city thing or go to the public meeting or whatever where things get, this is how much I know, okay? This is where I'm at. But that's, they don't even then search to find it. They use the trusted source that says they're using your taxes for this and that. And then they believe them and then they don't actually look further into it. And neither do I. So I get that, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I find it interesting that I see so many politicians complain about the corruption in government and how dysfunctional government is, and yet they are in government. They're the ones running the show, and they're the ones complaining about how terrible it is. It's like, well, if it's like, well, wait, wait a second. So you're the one in government complaining about how bad government is, and you want me to vote for you again so that you can, you know, how are you cleaning this up? You're not actually doing anything. And so I find it interesting that a lot of times, I think a lot of times there are, are large 
groups within our politics that band together and basically ruin things so that they have something to complain about. You know, or they're looking out for certain interests and then there's a lot of misdirection of things. Um, we see with a lot of politicians, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not choosing sides here because I know it happens on both sides, but I'm trying to point out this is just behavior that we see all the time is that they have very large contributors to their campaign. And so certain things don't get passed simply because of that. And that happens on both sides. And I'm not saying one side is better than the other. I know where I sit. And that's because the policies that I think need to be enacted, you know, you know, are more in line with my values. So that's where I, where I sit on those things. But I think that there's a lot of dishonesty that goes on when people complain about things not happening in government and complain about all the problems of government, yet they are the ones causing those problems. You know, it's kind of like, hey, see, look, government's broken. So you should vote for me. Why? So you can go back and break it because you aren't fixing it now. Yeah, I mean, but I guess the only way is to fix it from the inside out. It's like to change government, you can't do it from the outside. It's impossible. So you would have to run a campaign to then get voted in to then change it, right? Yeah, yeah. But then they get in and then, you know, then they go into the system because, you know, that's what we assume that happens. People get, you know, once you become president, then they, you know, hey, guys, hey, man, sorry. This is actually how it works. So... Um, you can't really do what you wanted to do, you know, but that's, you know, obviously a blanket, very blanket assumption, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it, it is true. It is true on both sides. It is hard to determine. Um, I mean, we just had a governor race here in New Jersey that was so tight that nobody really even predicted it would be that tight, as tight as it was, um, mainly because the, it was, the other person was just not the person who's the governor now, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, similar things have happened in previous elections that have been very close to this time, you know? Um, but, but that, but that's kind of the system. I think, I think we're kind of, I think we just need the more open. Um, we need more options. We need more options. And people say, oh, more options. That's, you know, when you're making a buying decision, that's not good. Cause you're not going to pick anything. You're not going to vote if there's 13 parties. Um, I'd rather be, there be way more representation than people not vote. I'd rather a smaller portion of passionate people vote that actually have more options than a less uh, than a larger portion of non unpassionate people voting for one side or the other side. But yeah, I mean, it's um, there's so much to it, man. I could go. We could go another hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the thing is, politics is always it's a dicey thing. So I I try to tread. Gently on that, because I, like I said, I have very strong political opinions, but I, I keep them out of my podcast. Like you said, you, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do, but it, it doesn't, just because my podcast is about stoicism, well, first off, it's my podcast, so I could talk about whatever I want. So when I have these, you know, people send me stuff saying, stop being political, it's like, wait, this is my podcast. If I want to be political, I can. You can just, there's, hey, there's a lot of stoicism podcasts, you know that. Yeah, and I'm like, if, don't, don't listen to it. I am not forcing you to listen to my podcast by any means. Um, so I, I always find those kind of amusing when people, you know, try and tell me what to do. You know, they don't want me telling them what to do, but yet they feel that they have the right to do so. So it's, it's interesting. You know, I just kind of shrug at it and be like, okay, what, you know, you're welcome to your opinion. Um, so I, it's, and there are times where it, it does bother me a little bit. So there's a little bit of that people pleaser side that I grew up with that is like, oh, they didn't like it. So, but I just kind of have to go. Yeah, you know, that's their opinion, and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So, obviously, I'm doing something right because I do have, I think, I passed, you know, 3 million downloads a while back. So, 
Yeah. So there are some, somebody's listening to it anyway, and I know it's not all my mom, so. <laughs> hey, man, I love it. I love it. Um, Is there anything, uh, did you, okay, you didn't expect to have 3 million downloads, right? No, not at all. I mean, when I started off, uh, I think after a few months when I hit 5,000 downloads, I was just like in shock. I'm like, wait, I, this got downloaded 5,000 times? Like, wow. And then when I hit 10,000, the same kind of crazy thing happened. Um, and then when I took a year, a year and a half off from the podcast, cause I was just too burnt out on it. Um, I think when I quit, I was about like 70 or 80,000 downloads. And I was just like, wow, that's, yeah, okay, whatever. And I just left it out there. And over the time when I was off, it went from that to about 360,000 downloads just when I wasn't doing anything. And so then when I started it up the, at the beginning of this year, I think it was about four, yeah, I think it was about 400,000. And then since that time gone from 400,000 to, um, uh, what, I think a little over 3 million now. So in basically a year or so, it's kind of crazy. How did people find, how did that many people find it? You're not, you didn't do like marketing campaigns and stuff, right? Was it spot? Cause Spotify gave it to me. Spotify recommended it to me. So if it, I guess if the algorithm sees it gaining traction, then it just pushes it a little bit more. I, I mean, but, but do you know, like, do you have any insight on like how it actually got to that point? Yeah. Um, from what I can tell about 80% of my listeners are on Spotify. So, and then the other portion, I think probably about 12, I think about 12% are on Apple podcasts and then a smattering of other ones, but, uh, yeah, about 80%, which I was kind of surprised again, hadn't done any type of, I've never done any marketing for my podcast. So it's just all word of mouth. It's all just organic growth from that. So I've, I've never taken out an ad, never done anything with it. I've done probably just a handful of interviews on other podcasts. So. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. Wow. Where, so it might've just started with that core, like small group of people. And I guess it just kind of grew from there. And then the algorithm picked it up and, and, and people, and obviously it's a quality show. Like it has to be a good podcast. It's a 10 minute podcast. I love the format. Um, you know, it's, it, I assume that you can batch episodes pretty, pretty nicely if you have to. Um, actually I'm terrible about that. <laughs> I, um, usually the podcast is done on the weekend that I release it. So I, uh, that's one of my, my downsides of, I'm not the best at planning out my time. Um, I, I try and I will, I will tr really work hard to try and go, okay, I'm going to start on it on Monday and then I'll write a little bit and then a little bit on Tuesday and then, you know, get involved. You know, I've got two kids, you know, and, uh, even though they're grown and I, I don't see my, my youngest nearly as much cause he's running cross country and doing cello and all kinds of stuff. But, um, and then usually I'll hit the weekend and then, you know, have to, you know, work a few hours on it like that. And it's one of those things where people mistake the fact that it's a short podcast, that it doesn't take a lot of time to do because writing quality and working really hard to make sure that the content is up to the level that I want it at um, usually takes me about four to five hours just to write the podcast. And then it takes me about an hour to record and edit. So it's not just a, uh, you know, people think that podcasting is, you know, it's just easy. You know, you just sit down at a mic and you talk. Well, sitting down at a mic and talking about something is, is fine. But sitting down at a mic and making something that's interesting that people want to listen to, that's hard work. 
And that's where I think a lot of people mistake how much work actually goes into a podcast. Yeah, it's not an easy one like this, man. You just talk and see what happens, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> no, man, I launch podcasts for a living. So um, it, that is so interesting to me. Um, I, I do this. I've launched like whatever, 15 or something now. And the way, I mean, for me, yeah, I spent about six hours an episode. Um, and that's only cut down because I have three video editors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, this stuff is crazy time consuming. And why do 85% of podcasts stop at episode eight? Everybody, it's, you know, uh, it's not what it seems. Uh, and, and from the outside. And yeah, I mean, that's real. I didn't even realize that you spent so much time even like scripting those episodes and not just like coming on and talk for 10 minutes and then pop off. Like the problem, the best thing is that it doesn't seem like that. It's so polished that you can't, you shouldn't be able to tell. So you should, your mind should never go past the content as a listener. Like I will, cause I do this for a living, but it's a testament, man. You do a great job. No, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of, it's definitely a lot of work, and it's not something that um, I wish I were easier. I wish I wish it were easier for me. I wish I were one of those people who could kind of just sit down and off the cuff, you know, nail off those things. But yeah, as people, we're we're not really geared that way. You know, we we, I don't know. I think that even you know, even good rappers and stuff like that, your freestylers, they practice that thing. They work and they polish and they come up with phrases and they come up with ideas and lines of things over a long period of time. And so they kind of have, they have a whole bunch, of, it's kind of like they're making their arrows and they put them in their quiver and they make another arrow, they put it in their quiver. And then when they go up to do their freestyle thing, they're like, okay, what arrows do I want to use today? Oh, I remember this phrase a while back. This worked really well. And they throw that out there. And then, oh yeah. And they, so this is the story I want to go off on this thing. And so we're not built as humans to be able to be that succinct and speak that clearly. I mean, you watch a TED talk. You know, that's 10, 15 minutes that somebody is up there. And I bet you they have probably put in at least a good 20 to 40 hours to get that talk, that, you know, 10, 15 minute talk that good. And, you know, if they, if they give a lot of those talks, then they could probably, you know, drop it down to maybe, you know, 10 hours to be able to do something like that. But they're still going to put a lot of prep time into actually writing it and then practicing it. And so... Yeah. So it's, it was an interesting process for me. And there are times where I've thought about just doing a, you know, a, a more an interview style so that I could have more time on the weekends rather than spending time writing that, you know, I could just sit down and chat with somebody. So, but, um, yeah, it's, it is what it is. And it's something that that works for me and I'm trying to get to the point where I can batch them a little bit better, but, uh, oftentimes something will come up like, uh, two weeks ago, I was feeling kind of sick. You know, caught some kind of bug or something like that and was a bit under the weather for a few days. And it was really, really hard to focus on trying to write a podcast episode. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to get up here and just say, this is, you know, this is something that I, you know, I have a, a community that's built around the podcast and I have a daily journal prompt that I put out there. So I took a couple of those that were related and turned that into a little episode. And it's only like four or five minutes long. And it was just more of like, a, hey, here's a thought for the day. And I want you to think about it, you know, and kind of dissect it like I usually do, but just left it more up to the listener to, I want you to take some time and sit down and write about this idea. And, you know, it wasn't nearly the quality that I wanted it to. It wasn't nearly as long as I wanted it to, but it was what I was able to get out that day. And that's what I've learned with this, with doing anything in this podcast is just consistency. You have to 
keep doing the work. And like you said, why are there so many podcasts that get less than 10 episodes? It's because being consistent is the killer of, of fail, of failing at something. You just have to put out the work. I mean, you know, and you know, this as you know, with your music production, for example, I mean, if you only put out three songs, they may be amazing songs, but not that many people are going to invest much time or really pay attention to you because you only have three songs. Now, if you have a hundred songs and you put them all out there and people come to your website and go, whoa, this dude's got a hundred songs. They're going to take the time and invest into some of that. But that's a hundred more chances for them to actually find something that they like of your stuff. And if you only put out one song or two songs or three songs and then wonder why you're not being successful, it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, the best songwriters, the best musicians, the ones that are the most successful, have probably written, I mean... I'm a big Ryan Tedder fan. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, lead singer of One Republic. Probably about 10% of the last thousand hit songs you've heard, he's he's written or co-written those. I mean, he writes for everybody. Beyonce, Adele, uh, Ellie Goulding. I mean, just all of these songs, plus his own band, One Republic. And I bet you he's probably written close to 10,000 songs because he is so prolific and just writes and writes and writes and writes. And he's not, you know, he just knows that if he's going to get something good, he's got to put out a lot of crap too. He's got to keep doing it. He's got to keep writing these songs. And occasionally he's going to strike gold. He's going to be like, ah, there's that one. Boom. And then he'll turn around and, you know, find somebody to record it or record it himself. But you got to be consistent and you got to keep putting in the work. And people want that instant success and it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, you know that with your podcast, huh? How many episodes are you at now? Um, I don't know, but probably, I think, 70-something. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I've made, um, yeah. yeah, so 71 or somewhere around there, and um, three and a half years, stopping twice. Um, on the music side of things, yeah, I've done a full album. I've done two EPs. Um, I've done three music videos. I've done 10 remixes. I've done uh, 2,000 pieces of content. And I'm, I've made progress. I have a fan base, but I have a listeners for my podcast. But, you know, it's it, I, like if I was just stop here, hey, I'm good, you know? Um, and, and, and to your point, people's standards are too high for themselves. That's the issue. That's literally the issue. They don't want to make something shitty. Well, you suck for now. And you're going to make shitty stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like for now. It's Absolutely. Like, can't you realize yeah. that? You, like I sucked, man. I'm good at, I'm way better. Like, man, I structure, like this is a song. Like I structure it all out now. I write it all out. I have a goal for the song. I write right up at the top the goal. I never did that before. Are you kidding me? Like I have a structure, a way of doing it now. I can, I can really do it. I'm a lot better at songwriting, things like that. But yeah, f- you know, five years, six years. And it's like, but five years just to get started man like you're just getting them rolling you're just getting a ball rolling but hey man people don't it's uh it's 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 hard you know you have to be dedicated like you said it, it's all about that consistency I, I 37 30 this this episode will probably be 40 weeks in a row for this podcast and um march 1st 2021 i it was a monday and i said i just made a decision that day and i listened to a podcast the other day with lewis house and school of greatness and he said why do you think this podcast is successful i've released one podcast every week for eight and a half years and at that point i went on my google calendar i set 
I set eight and a half years in the future, and I said, you hit eight and a half years, you hit Lewis House, man, but don't stop. Like, it's like, that's what I treat it like that now. I'm, this is a, this is not a one year, this is not a two, it's not a 10, it's not a 20. Maybe it's a 20, but I don't even think 10. I just feel like I got another 30 in me, 40 for the podcast, you know, but um, people don't have that. Yep. And I've actually, uh, just a little side note, I'm going to do a little name drop here. I actually did get to meet Lewis. So I was at a podcast. Yeah, I was at a podcasting uh, week conference up in Seattle, uh, Chase Jarvis's Creative Live, and he and Chase are pretty good friends, and he came on there, was a guest, and so I have a picture of me standing between Lewis and Chase. I'm only 5'7", and Lewis is like, what, 6'7", or 6'8", I mean, he's a big dude, and uh, Chase is a pretty good size, he's like six foot, maybe about 200 pounds, so you you know, there's me. <laughs> I'm 5'7", too, man, so. They're, they're both really, Yeah. So, and they're great guys. Both of them are just really, really super nice. And I actually got to, uh, I got to interact shortly with uh, Tim Ferriss. He was doing a video thing over that. He wasn't able to be there in person, but he was taking uh, questions or a video thing that they had with him and they were doing like a, you know, a remote thing. And so I got to ask a question and, and, uh, also, you know, kind of fanboy on Tim and say, Hey Tim, by the way, you're the reason I started this podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and you know, just let them know how much stoicism had helped change my life and helped me become a better person and much more control my anger and, and a lot of the, these really strong emotions that I had. And so that was pretty cool too. So I got to be like, Hey Tim, you rock. Thanks man. (laughs) So it was, it was, it was a fun time and learned a lot about podcasting. It was a whole week. I just, that was my vacation that year because, um, I think the year before I, yeah, the year before we got into Burning Man and it was our last year for a while. And I was just like, okay, you need to take some time off. So, and we thought about going to Europe, didn't have enough money saved up. So we we're just like, you know, this thing came up and I was just like to my girlfriend, I'm like, Hey, would this be cool for you to, you know, go up and, and do this thing and hang out at this podcast thing? And she was like, yeah, that actually sounds like fun. So we rented a house up there and spent a week going to this fun podcast conference and it was a blast. And, uh, and the funny thing was a friend of mine from high school who lives up in Seattle, I mentioned to her, I said, Hey, we're, we're coming up there. I'd love to go have dinner with you. And she's like, wait, what is this? What is this thing? And I'm like, well, it's this podcast conference. Like, could I do that? And I'm like, I don't know, write them and see if they'll let you, you attend it too for free. And she, so she ended up showing up. And so, you know, we, it was, it was a lot of fun. Just met a lot of really great people. Uh, Daniel Laporte was there. Uh, uh, Srivasana Rao was there. Um, just all kinds of really neat and interesting people that, you know, got to watch them work and to have them teach classes and stuff. So it was really. Wow. You're really selling me on this, man. I got to go to one of these things. There was one, the uh, podcast convention maybe or something. It was in Nashville, I believe um, this year I didn't get to attend, but I have a friend there. So yeah, I'm getting into it now that I'm LLC in the business and everything. And I can be a little bit more established. Uh, I, Cause I know you gotta have to be somewhat recognized to get into some of those. Um, but I've always wanted to go to some of that. I did go to a ton of music stuff but yeah to have like full podcast experiences man that would be that would be game changing um but uh but yeah uh, actually my friend whose episode i sent you he met tim ferris as well um kind of in a passing he just passed by him hey uh appreciate your stuff (laughs) like that was you know had a small conversation but yeah i'm really um you know uh living vicariously through those experiences i'm i'm gonna meet some of those guys one day we're getting there i have a lot of time on my uh, in uh (laughs) ahead of me so (laughs) You're going to keep going. 
Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fun doing a lot of those things. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think you'll get there. But, you know, consistency is key. And I think that that's one of the big things that people miss out. And that's why, you know, watching what you're doing, I, you know, it's, it's really cool to see how much, how you've kind of just listening to the other interview you had with Tyler a while back. Um, and there were just some things you said where it sounded like you had learned those lessons of like, it's not easy. It is a, you know, it is in a way it's drudgery. You know, uh, it's, uh, you mentioned uh, Stephen Pressfield in, you know, when you were writing to me on LinkedIn. Um, Stephen Pressfield is is somebody that I definitely go to for those things. When he talks about that resistance, he talks about that friction that keeps you from doing the things you want to do. And yeah, so I, I totally get that. And then when you mention that, I'm like, good, this is somebody who understands that being an amateur is fun. And it's, you do it because you love it. Being a pro is hard because you do it because it's your job. And it, and once you decide that you're turning pro, that's when you really will make strides. That's when you will really improve. But you will also do it because you've signed on to do it. And you don't do it because you're in the mood. You do it because that's your job. And that makes a big difference in almost anything you do. Is While in some cases it can take the fun out of it, but it also means that you create a body of work that you can be really proud of. If you do it just when you feel like it or when you're inspired or because you love it, then it's going to be much harder to actually get that body of work that you're going to be proud of in 10, 15, 20 years. Starting is the easy part. If people think it's hard to start, sorry, you got a whole nother roadblock ahead of you that you got to get over first. (laughs) You know, it's like once you, and you know this, once you start enough things for the first time, you realize that that's the fun part. Um, and, And maybe it's not for everybody, but yeah, like you said, consistency. And I appreciate you saying that, by the way. I really am like... Um, I know that I know a lot of things, but I, it's, it's almost, I'm way ahead of my life experience in in some ways. And now I've had a lot of life experience for only 23 years, but as far as what I know, I need to then go experience them. And so that's when time, um, you know, what time's going to do. But, but for me, yeah, I put, I play music every single day, um, in the morning, I set aside an hour to do it. I podcast every single week, no questions asked. If I can't do it in person, I, I just set limits. If you can't do it in person, do Zoom. If you can't do Zoom, do solo. If you can't produce, find a producer, right? Like all these, you breaking down all those barriers, you know? Uh, but that's, yeah, that's what I've designed over the past few years. It's somewhat working, so <laughs> I'm gonna keep it going. But uh, Eric, lots of wide ranging thoughts on this one, as Tim Ferriss would say, a wide ranging conversation. Yeah. Um, in in the least, man. Um, I I love it. I I had a fantastic time, and I know that there's a lot of valuable snippets in here as well, especially on stoicism. And uh, before we we head out. Can you just let people know where to find the podcast? You don't have to drop, you know, every single social. I'll, I'll have it all linked below, but just let people know where to find you if they want to. Can they connect with you, ask you questions, and then um, your podcast as well? Okay. Um, you can find me on my website, which is stoic.coffee. And, you, can, you know, you it's just a basic WordPress website, but I, it's pretty clean. Um, I also have a community, uh, the Stoic Coffee House, which you... You know, we talk about a lot of these things um, and we, there's a daily journal prompt and there's more and more stuff, which I'll be adding to that over the next few months. We just launched it last month and you can find that at stoic.coffee slash join if that's something that you'd be interested in. And you can pretty much find me on all the major platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, I, I think I pretty much am with most of them. And if there isn't, if you can't find it on the 
listener that you like. Most of them will have a search functionality, which will sync up to Apple Podcasts. So if you just put in Stoic Coffee, I'll probably you'll probably be able to find it pretty easy. Yeah, I typed in Stoic Coffee and it came right up. So 100%. Um, Eric, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate you being here, man. Oh, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Anytime. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we are on all platforms, even the ones nobody uses. This has been another episode of Bobcast. And please do not go anywhere. Have something for you in the outro. Hey, it's Sully. Before we head out, one quick ask. And let me describe this to you. Would you like to receive one email per month from me covering everything we talked about on the podcast during that month. This will also include music content, uh, videos, YouTube, video versions of the podcast, anything podcast or content related for the month covered in one email per month. So this is our newsletter. So if you would just go to sullybop.com on your phone, computer, tablet, whatever you're on right now, S-U-L-L-Y-B-O-P, so just type that in sullybop.com and scroll to the very bottom of that homepage and you'll see join our newsletter right there. Now, that will cover, as I said, all the topics we talk about on the podcast, just a synopsis of the content for the month. So if you feel that that would be valuable, please do join that. I will also include uh, things I'm reading, things I'm interested in this particular month, supplements I'm taking, etc. So if that's something that's up your alley, please join our newsletter. I would really appreciate it. Okay, let you go. Have a great one and we'll see you on the next one.